Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. <clears throat> I'm going to start picking a bone with Pastor Walter. Uh, last week, he tried to pass off some of his text to me so that I could explain it. Uh, well, we've got a problem, Walter, because one of my kids was reading Genesis this week, and they had some questions that I think you should have covered in your sermon. Uh, specifically, I was asked, where did they go to the bathroom in the garden? Quote, because the garden is a beautiful place. Seems weird to have that stuff in a beautiful garden. They should have gone outside of the garden to go potty. <laughs> well, Walter, I will let you handle that. Uh, and don't try to pass off any of your texts to me because we've got plenty to cover today. <laughs> well, if you don't know me, my name is Manny. I'm one of the pastors here. And I grew up in Miami, uh, specifically a part of Miami that is called uh, Hialeah. Hialeah is 95% Hispanic, uh, Spanish-speaking. 73% uh, of that is Cuban. Uh, my dad is Cuban. And so growing up in a place like that, I grew up hearing the stories uh, from my friends' parents and grandparents of a tropical paradise that they had had to leave, uh, Cuba. And so grew up hearing stories of a land not quite flowing with milk and honey, but flowing with roast pork and cafecito. If you know, you know. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a wonderful place to grow up uh, hearing these stories, but I also knew that they were telling me stories of a paradise that no longer existed, at least not in the same way. I knew that because they were in Florida. They were in Miami living with me and not in that tropical paradise. And so they would always end their stories with something like, it wasn't always like this. So even as a young man, I knew that the stories of paradise would take a dark turn uh, in fact, I had never been to Cuba. I had never experienced this paradise that they talked about. All I knew is that the people who had seen it and lived it now lived as exiles somewhere else. And so we come to the text of Genesis in a similar fashion. You and I have never experienced Eden. You and I have never lived in a sinless world. And so just like when I heard those stories of a pre-revolution Cuba, you and I know hearing Genesis 1 and 2 that things take a dark turn. And Genesis 3 is that dreaded moment. It's the transformation of God's good garden of Genesis 1 and 2 into the world as we know it today. It's the story of Adam and Eve choosing their own way over God's good plan. But it's not just a story of their sin. It's your story and my story too. It is our story because it sheds light on the human experience and condition. It paints a picture of you and I hearing that same question of old. Did God really say? And you and I, we answer it much like they did. I know better. So what's wrong with the world today? Well, it's easy to look at somebody else, some other culture, some other voting block, some cleverly sliced demographic, and point the finger over there. But as you look at Genesis 3 and the picture that it paints of man and woman who've grasped at autonomy and suddenly they're utterly ashamed and terrified at their new independence, I hope you'll notice that it's your face and it's my face in that portrait. But I also hope that you'll notice this, that in that darkest moment, when the very good creation is spoiled by sin, that's not where the story ends. In fact, with Adam and Eve's failure, we also have the story of God, who in his mercy, though he judges sin, has tender care for his beloved creatures. And above all, I hope you'll see God's good and promised hope of salvation. We're reading Genesis 3 from the wrong side of Eden. But there's hope, because we're also reading it from the right side of Calvary. 
When you and I rebel against God's authority by choosing our standards of right and wrong, we don't get life and freedom, we get death and alienation. But God in his goodness and grace provides a path to life for sinners. And so we're going to pray here in a moment and unpack Genesis 3 by looking at three key ideas. The origins of sin, the effects of sin, and God's provision for sinners. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning knowing that we are sinners, knowing that we are alienated from you uh, because of our sin, and also knowing for those of us who are in Christ that you made a way for sinners to be reconciled to the just and holy God so that we could enjoy fellowship with you, forgiveness of sin, and life everlasting. And so, Lord, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that we would be shaped by it, transformed by it, nourished by it, mold us into Christ-likeness through your word. Call out the sin in our hearts. Lord, may we flee from it, cast it before you, and turn to you for mercy. Do not let us walk out of here without being transformed by your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's start with the origins of sin. And at the very beginning, we've got a tempter, the serpent. Who is the serpent? Well, the text doesn't explicitly tell us here in verse 1, um, but there are some clues. Uh, the text says that uh, the serpent was the most cunning, another translation says, or more crafty than any other of the animals God had created. So it's drawing attention that it's not just an animal, but somehow this animal is the most cunning or more crafty than the others. Not only that, but the serpent speaks. And so I don't know if you've ever been around the serpent, but they don't tend to speak here and now. And so that should also clue us in that something is amiss. It's not just Dr. Doolittle happening here. Something is off, and immediately our awareness should be raised to it. From the testimony of Scripture elsewhere, particularly I'm going to highlight Revelation 12 and 20, uh, we have references to this, uh, to God's cosmic as enemy, Satan. And he's referenced in Revelation 12 in this way, the ancient serpent who deceives the whole world. We also know from Hebrew that uh, the word that is rendered serpent also could mean something like bronze or shining one, I think maybe hinting at something like a divine being. So I think the best way for us to understand the serpent is not just as an animal that can talk, not just as uh, some animal causing some trouble, but a cunning adversary who shows up in the garden to oppose God and deceive his image bearers. God has an enemy, and that enemy aims to wage war against him by interfering with his creatures, particularly those that bear his image. And he does interfere by casting doubt in the minds of those image bearers. He asks the question, did God really say, but it's not because there's a misunderstanding. In fact, did God really say is a deliberate attack? He addresses the woman, not the man. The woman's been given as a helper for the man. As Pastor Walter told us last week, this means that she's an ally, a teammate. It's not good for the man to be alone. So God provides that which is good, gives the woman as a helper, an ally to the man, and completes his creation in that way. And that precisely is where the serpent attacks. Man and woman bearing God's image together working as a holy team to fill the earth and subdue it, face an attack with the serpent planting multiple seeds, seeds of doubt of God's goodness and division within that holy marriage. 
The serpent also tells them, you will not certainly die in open opposition to what God has actually said. He's portraying God as curtailing human freedom and potential. God's prohibition, that's not a good provision. It's a deprivation. God is keeping good from you, keeping specifically the knowledge of good and evil from you. And with that kind of knowledge, there's no need to rely on God and His Word to know what's good and not good. You could just know it on your own. You could just decide for yourself and do what is right in your own eyes. There is no more need for God. That's the serpent's lie. He says, you will not surely die, implying the idea that God's judgment against sin is irrelevant and not real. Maybe that hits us close to home. You might be sitting here thinking, actually, religion is that shackle on human progress and fulfillment. This God idea is just meant to keep us from all that we can be. And that feels to us in the year 2023 like a very modern idea. Let's throw off the shackles of religion, kick out God, and be free. Well, your brand new idea actually is pretty old. It's the oldest trick in the book, literally. God isn't withholding good from you. You were made. You were made for a purpose. And the one who made you has authority over you. And God's word is not subject to your judgment or mine. That authority can and will righteously judge sin. He will rightly decide between good and evil. Yes, that means an eternity of punishment. Yes, hell that we don't talk about enough. It is real and it is for those who rebel against God. And for us to argue it away, to explain it away, or to deny it is simply burying our heads in the sand. So in verse 6, we arrive at the final treason. What do they do? Well, woman sees that fruit is good. The fruit of this tree is good in three specific ways. It's good for food, it's good to look at, it's pleasing to the eye, and it's desirable for obtaining wisdom. Well, she's decided that it's good in her eyes because good is no longer rooted in what God said. God's already told them what is good. But she declares it for herself, something different. It's interesting then, in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, we're actually already told that God had given every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food. So two of the three things that she finds this tree desirable for have already been provided for them in abundance by God. And so that just leaves a desire to obtain wisdom, which actually doesn't sound so bad, right? Except two things. One, God speaks directly to humans in the garden. They know him personally. They inhabit with him. If they want wisdom, couldn't they just ask him for it? In fact, James 1 tells us precisely that. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. No, it's not real wisdom that she wants, wisdom that flows from God and is rooted in fear and communion with Him. She already has access to that. What she wants is a faux wisdom. It's a wisdom that is without God and administered by man. They already have everything they need, but they want more and they want it without God. Adam and Eve sound like the average American. So she eats and so does Adam. And why doesn't Adam refuse or speak up? Why doesn't he interfere? He lets a bad thing happen, and he participates in it. The one who was tasked by God to rule on his behalf just goes with the flow while the world falls apart. 
We might repurpose T.S. Eliot's haunting ending from The Hollow Men and say, this is the way paradise ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. There's no war here. They simply just choose to disobey and take the fruit and eat it. And every moment after this one is going to be different. The ones who have been made in the image of God, unique among the rest of creation, will reach higher and try to become like God in a very specific way and taste that forbidden fruit. Which brings us then to the effects of sin. The serpent's deceit is unveiled. Their eyes are opened, except it's not quite what they expected. It's not enlightenment. It's not liberation. It's shame. Before, they were naked and not ashamed, and now they're in a rush to cover up. They're ashamed of who they are and what they are. There's a stain now on what God had called very good, and they cannot unsee it. So they do exactly what you and I would do. They try to deal with their existential dread on their own by covering it up with fig leaves. And their fig leaves aren't very good at the task of covering up shame. They hear God walking in the garden, and they hide. You might expect God to show up for an epic showdown, some big confrontation, fire from heaven. But no, God walks in the garden during the cool of the evening breeze. It's a pleasant time. He shows up in a way that they can comprehend. He simply walks in the garden. But what do they do? They hide. I don't need God and I can be my own authority has suddenly changed into the fig leaves aren't working. Let's hide. Because shame is more than just some fig leaves can fix and cover up. They were made to commune with God and now the reality of their present condition is just too much to bear. They hide. What about you? Do you have a sense of your sinfulness before the perfect and holy God? Where do you go with all that guilt and shame that plagues you, that keeps you up at night, that wakes you up in the morning as a heavy pressure on your chest? Maybe you're stronger than the rest of us, and you think, I can hold my chin up. I can stand exposed as I really am before God and be proud of it. Well, it didn't work for Adam and Eve for all their grasping at being like God. They're covered in shame. So how can you be so sure? You, a mere man, that you can stand before God unashamed. What righteousness could you possibly bring to the table? God calls out for the man, showing gentleness and patience. Where are you, he says. God knows what's happened, and he knows where Adam is, but he's walking and talking in the garden in search of his now broken creatures, putting his mercy on display. God is merciful, and he pursues wayward people. And so hang on to that thread as we go through the rest of this chapter. Adam says, I heard you, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. What a great summary for the human experience, right? We hide in so many ways from our Maker. Some of us hide behind religion, attempts to be righteous on our own merit. Some of us hide behind bravado. We're just fine the way that we are. Some of us hide by explaining God away entirely, as if the holy judge of the earth is an idea that we can just disprove. The one who spoke creation into existence, you think he's going to be undone by some clever argument? Good luck. God questions Adam, verse 11. And in verse 12, Adam blames his wife. And by implication, he blames God as well. 
If you look at the Hebrew here, I did a word study. This is actually the invention of the couch because that's where Adam slept that night after throwing his wife under the bus. <laughs> so the serpent comes to the woman seeking to undermine that one flesh union that God's created and the results are evident here. He turns on her to take the blame off himself. Notice how he implicates God. What he had received as a gift is now a liability. At last, flesh of my flesh has turned into that woman you gave me. He implies that God gave him something not good, and I cannot tell you how regularly I do this, implying that God has given me something not good. Why did you do this to me, God? This is too much. This is not enough. Our pity parties actually are just masquerades where we try to take the blame for our sinfulness and pass it off to God by way of our brothers and sisters. God pulls on that thread and he questions the woman in verse 13. What have you done? And she just passes the hot potato. The serpent deceived me. Now that God in his kindness, he only questions man and woman. He offers them a chance of confession, highlighting the relational dynamic at play. He doesn't summarily judge from afar, though he could have, but he interacts with them. He shows them patience and tenderness, even in this. They have a unique relationship to God among his creation, and they've brought ruin on that relationship, but God's mercy is an undeniable trait of his character. And so he questions the man and the woman, but when it gets passed to the serpent, he begins judgment. And he does not question the serpent. The deceiver receives his sentence, and the serpent is cursed. I don't think the curse of verse 14 and 15 is meant to explain to us why snakes don't have legs. Uh, that would be missing the point here, I think. Rather, I think the act of slithering on the ground is imbued with significance. It's a sign of the humiliation of God's enemy. The one who sought to undermine God is reduced to eating dust, a sign of ruin. He puts enmity between the serpent and the woman and between their res respective offspring. So there's a deeper meaning here. It's not just that this is why we don't generally like snakes. Although I know some of you like snakes, and if so, you should repent. <laughs> there's a promise here. The serpent who tempted and brought ruin, God's enemy, he will not only be humiliated, but he will be ultimately defeated by who? A seed, an offspring of the woman. Through her lineage, lineage there's coming a child who will, be, who will be struck on the head. Sorry, the child will strike on the head. There's coming a child who will strike the serpent on the head. That is a glorious promise, and that actually is the curse of the serpent. Ultimate defeat. His plan will not work. And that for us is really good news that this seed is promised. The story doesn't end here with the aftermath of sin. It carries on. And even now, God drops that beautiful pearl of promise into our path so we can see it. He then turns to woman and note in verse 16, the woman actually is not cursed, though she is judged. But there's a thread of hope that is woven into her judgment. And that thread of hope is that there is a promised offspring coming. It will come through woman, and it will defeat the serpent. She will have to go through much pain and effort to bring about children. But that pain and that effort is reframed by the context of hope and promise. 
Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you, God says. It's a difficult passage, but I think there's a clue to its meaning. That same exact construction is used in chapter 4, verse 7, when God says to Cain, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So that desire and ruling over is painting a picture, a disruption of the good order that God has created. Where they were before, a perfect one flesh union, perfect allies, perfect teammates, fulfilling their work together on the earth, now disorder reigns. Woman's desire is over or against her husband, not in a partnership, but in opposition. It's a desire for control or to conquer. Adam's been given a particular work from God, and the woman is given as his ally, his perfect partner in perfect harmony so they can accomplish it together. But now that partnership is tainted by her undermining him. And that's not all. The man, Adam, will respond in mastery or ruling over her, so the relationship is damaged. It still exists. There's still a one-flesh union, but there's a genetic defect now in it. That doesn't mean that every marriage will be terrible or every moment in marriage will be insufferable, but there will be a current forever pulling away from God's good design. Like a car that when you let go of the steering wheel drifts to one side, marriage dynamics also will have a drift. For the woman to undermine the man and for the man to rule over her with harshness. But Christian, if you're here and you're in Christ, I want you to know it's important for you to know what's in the genetic code of marriage. It's been damaged by sin. But you, Christian, are not bound by it. That is not your destiny. So you can resist the drift and not let it win by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. That curse has been broken for the believer. And so instead, we have a new standard. It's Ephesians 5, that beautiful picture of union between Christ and his people, the church. That beautiful picture of Jesus loving and sanctifying his church is our new narrative for marriage. And so yes, you're going to have to fight the tides of what's in the genetic code in this fallen world, but that new standard of marriage is Christ and the church. And ladies, if you're here, I want you to know that this church is a safe place for you. If your husband or some other man has let sin drive and through their words or their actions they're being oppressive or abusive, denying the inherent value that God has given you, you can speak up. We will hear you and we will act. We will act to uphold God's good design and not some horrible corruption of it. God then turns to speak to man, verse 17. And like woman, man is not cursed, but rather the ground is. The reason that's given is because he listened to his wife. And I don't want you to understand from that that husbands should not listen to their wives. Instead, I think it means that Adam took her voice over God's. He had heard God speak and say, you shall not eat. But he listens to her and disobeys. He hears her voice over the Lord's and it leads to rebellion. And so Adam chooses to eat, and now, because he chooses to eat what was forbidden, his eating for sustenance from here on out will come through great toil. There's a great parallel here. The consequences of sin are connected to their mandate. So God put him in the garden, and he gives him the task to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And now that is tarnished and made difficult because of sin. Woman is uniquely able to bear children, but now it will be painful with much effort. The ground that they should have subdued and cultivated now bears thorns, and their bread requires the sweat of his brow. Painful effort now marks for both of them 
the task that they were given by God. And notably, verse 19, there's the shadow of death and decay. Man was taken from the dust, and to the dust he will return. A tragic outlook for the man who sprung up from the ground with the task of ruling on God's behalf. Now he will work in the ground, and that working in the ground is working in his own grave. But if we walk away from Genesis 3 and all we hear is curse, I think we've missed a big part of the story. In judging sin, God has offered both hope and a promise. And so we come to this text knowing the story goes somewhere else. We know that that promised seed is Jesus. And we can see in Christ a perfect fulfillment, not just of the curse being lifted, but also future promise of eternal life. And so where the woman will bear children through much pain, Christ the seed brings many sons and daughters to glory through his suffering, as Hebrews 2 tells us. Where the woman's desire is set against her husband, we now have a Savior who perfectly submits to the Father's will, saying, not my will, but yours be done, in Luke 22. Where Adam will eat bread by the sweat of his brow and then return to the dust, Jesus proclaims in John 6, I am the bread of life, and whoever eats this bread will live forever. And this bread is my flesh that I give for the life of the world. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all live. Listen to Jesus' words in Revelation 1. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Where Adam and Eve dressed themselves in shame over their nakedness, in Christ we will not be found naked, as 2 Corinthians 15 tells us. And not only that, but we will be presented to God, holy, blameless, without wrinkle or blemish. Ephesians 5. So we can't walk away from Genesis 3 without looking at Jesus and finding him here. And the verses that follow this serve as something of an epilogue to the story of the fall. It's an epilogue that highlights the somber tone of judgment while letting a few rays of that promised hope shine through. And so we turn now to God's provision for sinners. How glorious. Eve, up to this point, actually has been called woman. That's her name. It means out of or from man, and it's highlighting her oneness with Adam, her sameness. But now she gets a new name, Eve, and that means life or living, and that's highlighting the promise of life given by God. They sinned, and the consequences they were warned of include death. But Eve's new name is a testament to God's promise. She will bring forth children, and her offspring will defeat the serpent. Out of the ones sentenced to die, God will bring forth life, and we know in Christ that life is eternal and abundant. Back in verse 7, they covered themselves with fig leaves, which was inadequate covering. But God here in verse 21 mercifully provides for them clothing made from skins, tunics. They cannot deal with their own shame, but God does. And so you should see God's care and concern over those who actually rebelled against him. God will judge sinners, but he's also full of grace and mercy. And that is not on your terms or mine, my merits or yours, but on God's terms and God's merits. But that is an undeniable part of his character. So God says, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And this results in expulsion. Well, knowing good and evil, what does that mean? It means that they've rebelliously chosen to take divine wisdom, divine knowledge for themselves instead of trusting God's goodness. Instead of trusting God's good provision for them, 
to have all that they need, but also to give them what they need to know. They've chosen a different path for themselves. They've grasped at that divine knowledge. And so in this new condition, man forfeits eternal life. They will die just as they were warned, so they are cut off from the tree of life. It's a deserved judgment for them, expelled from the garden to live out their days and the consequences of their sin. But as they're being pushed out, I want to draw some parallels here. We know that the tabernacle and the temple, which come later, are modeled after the garden. They're a callback to the garden. Specifically, we see that here, the entrance on the east side. Uh, we know that is evident in the temple and the tabernacle. And here, the cherubim are placed on that east side to guard the entrance. Elsewhere in Genesis, that eastward movement uh, is meant to highlight uh, Cain leaving God's presence. Uh, chapter 11, the Tower of Babylon is eastward, and then Sodom and Gomorrah are also described as being eastward. And that signifies that increasing distance between God's good design for mankind in the garden and man's ongoing rebellion to move further and further away from God's good plan. There's also cherubim listed here that are standing at the gate to keep uh, anyone from coming in and taking the tree of life's fruit. That same cherubim is represented in the Ark of the Covenant and the curtain in the Holy of Holies. And so there's a picture here that ought to honestly bring us much hope, great hope at the end of such a difficult passage because God doesn't just abandon his image bearers after the fall. In fact, he dwells with them again. He pursues them though they don't deserve it. He loves them a notable feature of God's character. He dwells with his people in the tabernacle and later the temple, but that finds perfect fulfillment, the idea of God dwelling with man in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And those of us today who have placed our trust in Jesus, we dwell with God because we are united with Christ, present with him now. He the head and we his body. And God dwells with us because his Holy Spirit lives inside of us who are his. And that tree of life, that, was, that they were banished from with no access to does show up again in Scripture. Revelation 22 has some incredible words of promise. It says, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will live them li give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. That is our future. The new Jerusalem, God's garden city, descends, and in its midst is the tree of life, and it bears fruit year-round. It does not run out, and God dwells with his people forever. And that task of ruling the earth on God's behalf that was abdicated by man and woman in Genesis 3 is taken up again, but Revelation 22 tells us that this time it's forever and ever. Amen. So Christian, this is your future, and it's also your present Sin is real and terrible. But if you're in Christ, then the curse is broken over your life. We're going to toil in this life. It will be hard, but we will not be lost to the grave. Our life is in Christ, and we will live with him and reign with him forever. 
So today, you should live like that's true. Today, don't spend your time waiting for the next life. Start now living out who you are as a priest king, ruling with Christ. Resist the temptation to live for your own kingdom, to build it up. For all of our modern notions of freedom, we did not create ourselves. We were made by God for a purpose, His purpose. And as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, what is our only hope in life and death? That we're not our own, but we belong to God. And so in Christ, you can embrace that beautiful truth that you're not your own, you belong to God because you were made by Him and for Him. Or you can choose to reject that truth and rebel. You can try to forge your own path. But like a Formula One race car on a dirt road, it just doesn't work very well. If you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and to be restored in fellowship with your Creator, then how's your fig leaf working out? How are you reconciling the brokenness of the world? Maybe you think that this Jesus stuff is what's wrong with the world. Well, where has the myth of human progress brought you? In our hubris, hubris, we declare ourselves to be God, each one of us the perfect arbiters of truth, each one of us masters of a tiny universe with ourselves at the very center. We believe that reason and science, that pinnacle of human effort, could save us. But has it worked? For all this independent achievement, for all the bravado, all the fanfare, at the end of the day, aren't we just standing naked and ashamed of what we've become? And there's nothing to comfort us but some fig leaves. Maybe you found a powerful sedative in the absence of a cure, but how good do you think power and money and sex and greed and ambition, how good do you think those things are at removing your guilt and covering your shame? Every billboard outside promises you freedom just by selling you into slavery. So how many sad fig leaves are we going to string together until we just admit it's not working? So we can fashion for ourselves a throne and scream our independence and our autonomy all we want, as loud as we want, but the raging seas, both literal and the ones in our hearts, will continue to defy us. So when you've run the course of trying to be your own God, when the liberation promised to you by a culture that has not been able to save itself turns out to be empty, there is really good news. It's Jesus. That is the really good news of Genesis 3. Yes, we are sinful, alienated from God, rightly deserving His wrath, His judgment. And yet God is so merciful that in Christ, wayward sinners like you and I can be made alive and participate in fellowship with God now and forever. And so, do not leave here today if that is not your story. If your story ends in Genesis 3 with judgment and curse, don't let it be so. There's more to the story in Christ, and it is available to you today while it is still called today. And so don't turn away from Christ. In a moment, we're going to take the elements together. I want you to take that opportunity to recognize that more than a bread and cup, we have Christ available to us. He is rich in mercy for the forgiveness of sins and for fellowship with God. And so don't waste it. Don't squander it, but cling to it. Call out to God who rescues the wayward and the lost. Let's pray. 
Lord, we're grateful that in the midst of a bleak story, a story of our rebellion, of our sin, of our desire to cast you off and have no need of you, there is good news. Good news for sinful people, for greedy people, for lustful people, for angry people. There's good news for us. And the good news is not that we can cover it up. It's not that there's some fig leaf out there that can take away shame. It's that you yourself provide our covering in Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray for these folks here that if they are in Christ, that they would cherish the joy of being his now and forever. Lord, that they would continue to uproot the vestiges of sin in their life, knowing that it is not their effort that will bring reward, but your accomplishment that purchases for us all the reward we could ever need. You are our life and our purpose. And Lord, for those who are here and don't know you, those who are still set in their rebellion, would you tear down the walls of hostility in their hearts and open their eyes that they might behold the beauty and the wonder of a God who saves those who rebel against him if they will call out to him for mercy. God, you are so good to offer mercy and forgiveness. I pray, Lord, that many would receive it. I pray we'd be faithful to announce that. And I pray, Lord, that sin would have no hold over our lives, that we would have no desire or appetite for it, but that our hunger would be, as Jesus said, for your word and to do your will. Make this true in us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.